From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we'll talk about Mike Davis, author of City of Quartz. He died Tuesday. But first, Stacey Abrams is running for governor in Georgia. We spoke with her about her strategy and her life. That's coming up in a minute. Stacey Abrams is behind in the polls of likely voters, which the pollsters define as people who vote regularly, especially in the last midterms four years ago. But her whole strategy is to organize and mobilize people who do not vote regularly to expand the electorate with young people, people of color, and those the political scientists call low propensity voters. We spoke with her in April 2019 after her first campaign for governor. Before we talk about uh, your book, Lead from the Outside, I want to talk about what you accomplished in Georgia when you ran for governor. Everybody I know says that if there'd been a fair count, you would be the governor of Georgia right now. Um, But you did accomplish anyway some amazing things in that race. So first I want to talk about the votes you got despite the votes you weren't allowed to get. How did your vote compare with other Democrats in recent history? So we received more votes than any Democrat in Georgia history, uh, including President Obama, Secretary Clinton, any any Democrat who's ever run. Uh, we were only under by 54,000 votes, but what I was so excited about was the composition of the electorate. We tripled Latino turnout. We tripled Asian Pacific Islander turnout. We increased youth participation rates by 139%. We increased black turnout by 40%. But to put that in context, in 2014, 1.1 million Democrats voted altogether. In 2018, 1.2 million black people voted for me. And we centered communities of color. We centered marginalized communities. We talked about their issues. And I was told that that would be to the detriment of my ability to secure white votes. And I actually received a higher percentage of white votes than any candidate in Georgia, uh, any Democratic candidate in Georgia since Bill Clinton. How did you do it? (laughs) Well, one is that I believe what I say. I, I believe diversity matters, and I think it's an active responsibility. It's insufficient to say you want something to be so, but you don't find your own responsibility to make it happen. And so our campaign was grounded in talking about identities, but never as an exclusionary principle. People vote, people participate when they think they can be seen. And my job was to show up in places to have either firsthand knowledge or have a supporting team that could help me understand what concerns were animating those communities or worse, what concerns were keeping them out of the body politic. And we built a campaign around creating access and creating a pathway for their participation. And it worked. And the work that went into this wasn't just one campaign for governor. No. (laughs) So one thing I talk about in in the book and lead from the outside is the responsibility to build that systems don't just come into being and therefore dismantling those systems or creating your own systems also require intentionality and thoughtfulness and infrastructure. And I, by my nature, am a systems person. I believe that democracy should be vibrant and engaged, but I also believe that poverty is immoral. And I believe that communities are too often kept 
distant from their power by being convinced that they, their power doesn't exist. And so I've spent the last 40, well, I'm 45, so let's say between one and five, I was probably not as active, <laughs> but <laughs> I've spent most of my waking life thinking about how do you get more people to the table? How do you get more people engaged? And in the last 20 years, I've been able to put that into practice through my work in the private sector, the nonprofit sector, and certainly the political sector. You have a really important section of your book on how to fight for groups of which you are not a part. And of course, we have to do this because we need allies if we're going to win. But it's hard to do that right. You say empathy is not enough. What is your approach? I think you have to have understanding, but you also have to lift up those who actually have those experiences. Sometimes empathy gives us an excuse. It lets us think that because I have something similar in my background that I now know what you know, and I know what you need. And that's when allyship becomes patronizing. What's more important is creating space for the people who actually have those experiences to do something about it. So for example, when I became democratic leader, I took over a caucus that had very few staff, in fact, almost no one. And I was building a staff, but I built a staff that looked like me and looked like people I know, so it was black and white. And I took myself to task that in a state that was quickly diversifying, where Latinos were becoming nearly 10% of the population, where Asian Pacific Islanders were growing in force, I had a responsibility to increase their access. And so I created an internship program to bring them on board initially, and then I found the money necessary to hire them. I hired a Palestinian, a young Palestinian woman to be my executive assistant because I could not speak authentically about engaging the Muslim community and not find space for their employment. And these are all people who were absolutely qualified for the jobs they had, but I had to be intentional about creating space so they had a platform to do the leadership they needed to do. So the big question is, after you accomplished all these things, the huge increase in turnout of Latinos, Asian Americans, young people, uh, after you got more votes than anybody, including Obama on the Democratic ticket, how come the Republican won? And because I was running against a cartoon villain who was the referee, the scorekeeper, and the contestant. He had 10 years of voter suppression under his belt. He had built a system that built on top of previous attempts at voter suppression that actually started under his predecessor. And he manipulated the laws, uh, aggressively enforced and selectively enforced those laws. He failed also to do the fundamentals of his job. And so we had this marriage of incompetence and malfeasance that allowed him to suppress access to the vote. I cannot prove empirically that I would have gotten every one of the votes that were suppressed. But if you look at the demography of those votes, if you look at the intentionality of his actions, I think it's a really good guess. So let's talk about Fair Fight Action. So Fair Fight Action was born of my frustration, my disappointment, but also my anger. Uh, democracy is ours. I am an American. I am entitled to have my voice heard but so were the millions of people who cast their ballots on both sides of the aisle and the tens of thousands who were not allowed to have their voices heard. My responsibility beyond getting an office is ensuring that anyone who wants to speak up about the, the direction they want to see for our state or for our country, that they are heard. And in Georgia, they were not. And so I want there to be a fair fight. 
and let's be clear, no matter what happens, I will never win the office of governor in 2018. It won't happen. But my responsibility is larger than my personal benefit. And that is that we fix the system itself. Fair Fight Action focuses on three things. Registration access, ballot access, and ballot counting. Making sure that you can get on the rolls, you can stay on the rolls, you have the ability to actually cast a ballot, they don't close your precinct or deny you access to an absentee ballot, and that your vote counts once you cast it. And we're going to do that through litigation, through legislation, and through advocacy work. And where do we stand on that today? So the litigation is ongoing. We are currently in a tete-a-tete with the Secretary of State and the Governor's Office, or technically the Secretary of State's Office in the state of Georgia. They are seeking to dismiss our motion. Um, they're seeking to dismiss our lawsuit with a motion to dismiss. Uh, we will keep fighting. We believe we will be successful. Uh, we have been fighting a terrible bill that has moved through the legislature and sits on the governor's desk that will allow him to spend $150 million more than has ever been spent by any state on voting machines. And he's likely to purchase machines that are known to be flawed, known to be hackable, known to be vulnerable. They've been called the worst voting machines out there. And it is a happy coincidence that the company that stands likely to win the bid formerly employed his chief of staff, his deputy chief of staff, and his general counsel just months before he became governor. Now, uh, you're an attorney. You graduated from Yale Law School. <laughs> what, uh, what do you think are your chances in court on this one? Uh, we think that on the issue of litigation, we think that we have a very strong case. We believe that it's uh, sui generis in that most litigation on voting rights have tried to tackle individual elements. Uh, precinct closures or voter ID or uh, closing of access, you know, the issues that we face, and they, they tend to approach it individually. We are looking at it systemically. We are taking the Brown versus the Board of Education approach, which is to say that while de jure, while the law may say it's so, the fact of the matter is when the law is implemented as it is being implemented in Georgia, people are being disenfranchised and they do not have the right to vote. And so our argument is that we believe that the de facto denial of the right to vote violates the Constitution, and I'm very bullish on our chances. But I'm also very happy that we have other folks fighting this fight. Uh, Chairman Cummings, who is the chair of uh, the Oversight Committee in Congress in the House of Representatives, has demanded documents from the Secretary of State and the governor to investigate their bad actions. We also have been part of hearings, field hearings, being led by Congresswoman Marsha Fudge, who's the chair of the subcommittee on uh, oversight for administration looking at the Voting Rights Act. And then Terry Sewell, who's pushing for the restoration of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. They're all paying attention to what we're doing. And so I do think, whether it's through litigation or legislation, I do think we will be successful at some point. Now, I've heard that Georgia isn't the only state with this kind of problem. What's your sense of the national picture right now? So one of the reasons I'm traveling the country and talking about this is that it's not endemic to Georgia. I think Georgia had not only the most singular example of voter suppression, but it's the most directly connected to the victory or loss in an election. Voter suppression is real, it's endemic, it's pervasive, and it's been around forever. But in my case, I had essentially a cartoon villain opponent and the clearest case of not only voter suppression, but the main actor who clearly controlled the outcome of the election. 
However, we know that in North Dakota in 2018, people were denied the right to vote because they were Native American. We know that in 2016, if you lived in Wisconsin or Michigan, there were efforts at voter suppression that were incredibly successful. We know that in Florida, there is a perennial issue with whether or not votes count. We know that in Texas and in North Carolina, voter registration, which is the predicate to being able to cast your ballot, has been made nearly impossible by third parties in Texas and been made very difficult in North Carolina. And across the country, including in California and other places, there are methods of voter suppression that are insidious and almost invisible to the eye unless you're the person trying to vote. And so my responsibility is to use Georgia as an object lesson. Uh, And because this is my state, to use our opportunities to try to solve it in Georgia. But we filed a federal lawsuit because our success in Georgia will affect the rest of the country. So let's let's talk about your book, Lead from the Outside. Um, It has exercises. In the first one, you call an ambition exercise. How come ambition is number one? Because ambition is the foundation for leadership. You have to want more. In fact, the the title of the chapter is Dare to Want More. And if you're from the outside, and and marginalization happens in a lot of ways. You can be from the outside because of race or gender or ethnicity or religion or class or simply, you know, because you're just different than those around you. But whatever keeps you outside of the normative power structure, to get inside, you've got to have a reason. And we often mistake dreams for ambition. Dreams are things that make you happy. But you can forget a dream. In fact, we often forget our (laughs) dreams. Ambition animates you. It fires you up, and it's unsettling. But we have to then harness it. And the challenge is that if you're from the outside, you're rarely taught how to harness your ambition. If you come from a powerful family, if you come from a power structure that validates your every thought, then there are systems in place to help you turn ambition almost automatically into action. But for the rest of us, we have to have an architecture And that means we have to know what we're trying to get to. And so what I wanted to do in this book, and the whole book is about this, is take what I learned through trial and error, but also through being deeply anal retentive and methodical, and write it down, create a handbook for those of us who do not have those systems that are already designed for our success. And the bird agrees. Birds are chirping with happiness. (laughs) One of the surprising parts to me about your book is the section about the hack. You say that you have been a good hacker. This is kind of surprising. What do you mean? <laughs> well, you know, in, in, in modern parlance, we talk about hacking things, hacking meals. It's basically how do you figure out what the system is and then how do you get around it or through it without doing the regular stuff. A lot of my life has been about a hack. It's been about how do you take these traditional spaces and figure out if you can't get them to let you in how do you figure out your own way inside Uh, you know in years past it would have been called guerrilla warfare Uh, (laughs) but for me it's it's understanding that when you first look at opportunity when you first look at these doorways and gateways there may seem to be no possible point of entry and that's why we have to figure out our own codes in our own systems. And so what I tried to do with this book, and particularly in this chapter, is talk about how I've hacked my way inside, how I've, both in the the sort of computer science and video games parlance, but also in the very, you know, pedestrian physical idea of just hacking through. When you've got to slice through 
if you've ever you know, wor worked on a farm when you've got to cut through the weeds and get through the detritus sometimes it's just about recognizing you're not going to get there the normal way so you're going to have to fight your way through in your book you say you reject the idea of work-life balance can you explain why because work-life balance is a lie it is a bald-faced lie told by someone who was selling something and you need to return whatever it is they sold you I, I've been asked how I write novels and run for office and start companies. And what I'm supposed to say is that, well, I've figured out this amazing, you know, equilibrium and things. That's not true. I've made mistakes. I've forfeited other opportunities. I've not done things that I care about because I haven't cared about them as much as I cared about the thing I wanted to do at that moment. And what work-life balance does is it creates a false sense of opportunity, but it also puts pressure on you in ways that are untenable because eventually you're going to fail. Things are going to fall apart. So instead, I operate under work-life Jenga. That's the game where everything gets stacked up and you have to pull pieces out and you hope like hell that nothing falls over. But the reality is, like Jenga, when everything collapses in on itself, the job isn't to ignore that it fell apart is to rebuild it and figure out a stronger structure to make it work. You have a couple of other wonderful rules. If it can't change the world, we don't do it. And that's followed by don't deal with jerks. Yes. So <laughs> I, I started a company right after I left the city attorney's office. And that was my first venture into entrepreneurship. And I realized I needed a partner in part because I think you always get better when you have people around you who know things that you don't know and who push you to be stronger. My first business partner was a woman named Laura Hodgson. Laura and I have since started three other companies. But in our first one in Insomnia, we had a set of rules. And one of our rules was we don't work with jerks. It was slightly more crass when we wrote it down. Uh, but our point was this, we'd both come from spaces where we'd worked with people who weren't just difficult to deal with, they were disrespectful. They devalued us, in some ways dehumanized us. And when you work in those spaces and you feel compelled to keep doing it, you start to internalize how you're treated and you validate it. And so we had a rule that if people were not respectful of our values, we could disagree, you could have a difficult personality, but you could not devalue who we were. You could not treat us as less than real and human and whole and so we had a rule that if we just didn't respect you and thought that you were a bad person or just not a good person the money wasn't worth it i want to ask a little about your family you have the most wonderful acknowledgments and it's clear you have an amazing family i'm especially interested in your parents because they started in mississippi and i'm i'm old enough to know what it meant to be a black person in Mississippi. Could you tell us a little about them? My parents are the most extraordinary people I've ever known, and I've met some really amazing people. But my mom and dad are both from Hattiesburg, Mississippi. My mom is one of seven. My dad is one of five. My dad jokes that he's from the wrong side of the track, and my mom's from the wrong side of the wrong side of the tracks. Like She's who poor people made fun of. Uh, my mother's life story is, especially her younger years, is like a Dickens novel. I mean, every time she tells us something, we go and buy her more stuff. <laughs> what they did was not let their humble beginnings in some ways their tragic beginnings they didn't allow that to diminish what they thought they were capable of you know my father is dyslexic he didn't learn to read 
functionally. I mean, he was able to make his way through school. He made his way through college because he has this amazing memory and he's incredibly smart. But he learned to read better by reading to my youngest sister when he had fallen and hurt himself and wasn't able to work full time. And they needed someone to watch my youngest sister when she they couldn't afford kindergarten for her or pre-K. My mother has always been just this brilliant woman who can make things happen out of nothing. And I saw her do that not only as a mom and a librarian, but also as a pastor. I saw my father fight hard for people who didn't always value and respect him and sometimes benefited from his work, but he didn't benefit from it. And then I saw them turn those moments of defeat into opportunities for triumph by becoming ministers. And they were called into the ministry and they live their faith and their sense of justice and responsibility every single day. And as long as they are not disappointed in me, I know I'm doing the right thing. One last thing. The amazing thing about your book is that it doesn't say, vote for me because I can do this. It says, you can do this, even if you're an outsider. I wrote this book in part because I was giving talks to different groups. I was I was actually in the middle of my campaign. I just started my campaign for governor. It was in the middle of the primary and wanted to provide a handbook. Uh, there are a lot of leadership books out there, and there are a lot of political memoirs. I didn't want to write a memoir because I've met me, and I, I'm, I like my story, but I don't think it's sufficient to sustain a whole book. But... I think there were things I did that positioned me to be the first black woman to be a nominee for a party, a major party for governor. I knew there were things I had done that allowed me to help start companies that were helping women and people of color and other communities access capital. I'd started this voter registration organization that had registered uh, by the end of 2018 more than 300,000 people. There were things I knew, but I also understood that knowledge in my head wasn't helping other people and that one-off conversations were inefficient and I really value efficiency. And so for me, this was really about enlarging the army of people who can be successful, especially those who discount themselves before anyone else can. When you're on the outside, you're perennially looking in, trying to figure out how to get inside. And I believe that if you can find a doorway or a cracked window and shove yourself through that space, your responsibility is not to run and get the next thing you need. Your job is to turn around and prop it open and send out a clarion call and tell folks, here's where it is. Come on through. And that's what I tried to do. Well, Stacey Abrams, thanks so much for talking with us today. And we're really excited about whatever it is you do next. John, this has been delightful. Thank you so much for having me. We spoke with Stacey Abrams in April 2019. Mike Davis died October 25th after a long struggle with esophageal cancer. He was 76. We were friends for a long time and co-authors of the 2020 book, Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s. And of course, he was often a guest on this podcast. Mike, of course, is best known for his 1990 book about L.A., City of Quartz. Marshall Berman reviewed it for the nation. He said it combined, quote, the radical citizen who wants to grasp the totality of his city's life and the urban gorilla aching to see the whole damn thing blow. 
And the whole thing did blow 18 months after the book was published when the Rodney King riots broke out in L.A. in 1992. Frightened white people rushed home, locked the doors, and turned on the TV news. But Mike was driving in the opposite direction with a friend. They parked, got out, and started talking with people in the streets about what was going on. Then he went home and wrote about it. Mike was a 60s person, but he didn't come from a liberal or left background. His father was a meat cutter and a conservative. And as a young patriot, Mike briefly joined the Devil Pups. That's the Marine Corps' version of the Boy Scouts. His life was changed by the Civil Rights Movement. In 1962, when he was 16, a black activist married to his cousin took Mike to a protest organized by CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, picketing an all-white Bank of America branch in San Diego. Soon he was volunteering at the CORE office there. He started college at Reed, but left to go to work full-time for SDS, Students for a Democratic Society. As an SDS organizer in the late 60s, Mike was part of the largest mass arrest in the history of 1960s protest. This was at Valley State, now called California State University, Northridge, in 1969. There, 286 people were arrested after a peaceful sit-down of 3,000 students protesting the school banning all demonstrations, rallies, and meetings. 45 years later, he said, What I remember most vividly about the arrests was the ride to jail in a police bus. The girls started singing, Hey Jude, don't be afraid. I fell in love with all of them. City of Quartz, of course, was his masterpiece. Published in 1990, it opens with a description of a visit to the ruins of the socialist city of Llano del Rio, founded in 1914 in the desert north of L.A. There, on May Day 1990, Mike finds two 20-something building laborers from El Salvador camped out, hoping for work in nearby Palmdale. When I observed that they were settled in the ruins of a Ciudad Socialista, he wrote, one of them asked whether the rich people had come with planes and bombed them out. Then they asked what he thought of Los Angeles. Quote, I tried to explain that I had just written a book, dot, dot, dot. And then you turn the page to chapter one, the unforgettable sunshine and noir. After City of Quartz, everybody wanted Mike. Adam Schatz wrote in 1997 about how phoning Mike Davis is a good way of getting acquainted with his answering machine. Sitting on his porch on a warm evening, I understood why. The phone rang incessantly, and Davis never once rose from his chair. The calls lasted from morning to midnight. It might be the photographer Richard Avedon or the architect I.M. Pai with a request for one of Davis's legendary tours of L.A. It might be a Danish curator mounting an exhibit on the postmodern city, an organizer with the Hotel Workers Union, or a student at UCLA's Cesar Chavez Center. Mike turned down most invitations to speak. I remember his daughter, Roisin, telling him in 2014, Dad, you really should reply to that invitation from the president of Argentina. And Mike saying, if I'm not replying to the Pope, I'm not replying to her. He had been invited to the Vatican after the publication of his book, Planet of Slums. But he did accept some invitations. At UC Irvine, where we were colleagues in the history department for most of a decade, I gave a lecture in his course to cover for him the day he was away speaking at an anarchist convention in Palermo. Mike didn't like being called a prophet of doom. 
Yes, L.A. did explode two years after City of Quartz. Yes, the fires and floods did get more intense after Ecology of Fear. And of course, a global pandemic did follow his book, The Monster at Our Door. But when he wrote about climate change or viral pandemics, he was not offering a prophecy. He was reporting on the latest research. After COVID hit, we did several nation podcast segments about it. He told me at one point, I've been staying up late reading virology textbooks. He said he wrote about the things that scared him most. Ecology of Fear, a bestseller published in 1998, dealt with earthquakes, forest fires, floods, and century-long droughts. One chapter, The Case for Letting Malibu Burn, became a classic. That's where he argued it would be better to spend fire budgets protecting crowded inner-city neighborhoods than protecting mega-mansions built in remote hillside fire areas. That provoked its own firestorm. His critics, led by a Malibu realtor, couldn't refute his argument, so they went after his footnotes. And both the LA Times and the New York Times ran stories about the so-called controversy. But the controversy faded and the argument became stronger in 2018, when fires circled LA and the sky was full of smoke for weeks. LA Times columnist Gustavo Ariano wrote, quote, During fire season, I always think about the case for letting Malibu burn. Unlike the rest of the new left, Mike didn't reject the old left. His mentor in the 60s and 70s was the renegade Communist Party leader in Southern California, Dorothy Healy. Mike loved arguing with her. When Dorothy died in 2006, Mike wrote in The Nation that she represented, quote, the left's greatest generation, those tough-as-nails children of Ellis Island who built the CIO, fought Jim Crow in Manhattan and Alabama, and buried their friends in the Spanish earth. Their deaths, he said, were an inestimable, heart-wrenching loss. Now we feel the same about his. We wanted to play part of one of the podcasts Mike did with us. Here he is one week after Trump was elected in November 2016. Initially, of course, you know, we all felt that the sky fell in on us. But if you look at the election results, there's a lot less there than we might have assumed or worried about. I mean, the great surprise of the election, at least from looking at the, you know, the final results on a county by county or state by state level, is not that it was a dramatic white working class shift to Trump, but rather it was his success in retaining the loyalty of Romney voters. And as many people may know, uh, his final vote uh, most places was about the same as Romney's, and the national total was about the same. And the key factor here was not so much the economic populism, but the cynical covenant that he made with religious conservatives after their hero Cruz was defeated in the primaries. So the Christian right was given a free hand to draft the party program at the platform at the convention, something of a dream platform. And then he chose one of their great popular heroes, Pence of Indiana, is his running mate. And if you read the religious right websites or statements by the key people, they make it clear that this was, this was really seen as the last stand for right to life, especially the control of the Supreme Court and a final opportunity to reverse uh, Roe versus Wade. And this may explain some of the more counterfactual 
result to the election, for instance, that Clinton underperformed Obama by eight points amongst uh, Latino Catholics, for example. I love that line of yours about the cargo cult of jobs uh, in the Trump campaign, jobs falling from the sky in answer to the prayers of the believers uh, on the island. Uh, How long do you think it will take Trump voters to see that Trump is not going to bring back those good manufacturing jobs? Well, there are, of course, explosive contradictions in Trump's platform, and it's difficult to see how the so-called movement conservatives or institutional Republicans are going to vote for the kind of deficit spending that would be required for a big infrastructure program or jobs program at the same time while dramatically slashing taxes for uh, the the upper tax brackets. From the data I've seen, the defection of white working class Obama voters to Trump was mainly a decisive factor in, in a lakeshore room of counties along the southern shore of, of Lake Erie, southeasternmost county in Michigan, in Ohio, and in Erie, Pennsylvania. And this is an area that's experiencing right now, as people have read from various accounts in the paper, a new wave of job flight to Mexico or, or the American South. But in other places, other parts of the Rust Belt, whether we're talking about the Piedmont textile and furniture towns of the uh, Carolinas or the Anthracite Valley areas of Pennsylvania, the defections from the Democrats, of course, took place uh, a while ago, even a long time ago, going back to two, 2000 election. And I think the media, to some extent, has conflated these two phenomena, that is the defection of Obama blue-collar voters with the vote of blue-collar whites who'd already endorsed Republicans. Trump uh, had famously the highest unfavorability ratings of any candidate in history, but it seems like a lot of the people, or at least some of the people who viewed him unfavorably, nevertheless voted for him. What do you make of that? Well, the Edison exit polls show that about a fifth of his voters, and that's about 12 million people, reported an unfavorable attitude toward him, but voted nonetheless. So how this breaks down, I mean, many of these might have been religious conservatives uh, who had supported Cruz, but were voting, in fact, for the platform and for Pence, not for Trump. But also, I think, includes, I think there were a lot of people who just, you know, wanted to see what was inside a Pandora's box. They pushed the red button, you know, in protest against Washington and elites. I think some people literally voted for chaos out of desperation or because they saw no other way to lodge a protest. Trump's policies are nowhere as near as improvised or incoherent as they're often made out to be. To uh, an uncanny extent, he embraced the politics that Pat Buchanan uh, has argued for for almost 40 years in which Breitbart has become uh, the megaphone for uh, policies as close to an American fascism as he'll ever get. But the super obstacles to this are that none of the institutional Republicans in Washington are going to go along with the economic nationalism part at, at, at the end of the day. It cuts directly, of course, against the interests of their corporate sponsors. You think the real revolution in American politics this year was not Trump's? No, I don't think so at all. And 
I think the the emergent phenomena that's most important has been the dramatic downward mobility of college graduates, including the children of new immigrants and working class families. That's the new economic distress that has found a political expression through the Sanders campaign. And there's simply no way that Trumpism is going to unite that kind of economic discontent with the concerns of older white working class voters. Mike Davis analyzing Trump's victory one week after Election Day in November 2016. Mike died Tuesday, October 25th. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. William Broughton is our audio editor. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. And subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.